Welcome, everybody, to episode 33 of the Beyond Red and Blue podcast. I'm your host, Bo Richards, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Dan Humphrey. Greetings and salutations. How are you doing today, Dan? Doing all right. How you doing, Bo? Good. I'm good. I'm sore. Um, That's I'm good. Very, very, I'm very, very sore. sore. Yeah, it's a good kind of sore. Um, yeah. I'm tired, too, but uh, we were able to officially open our gym, and so I've been training a bit just to make sure everything's up and running and uh so naturally with jujitsu training for the first time in a year comes a little bit of body soreness <laughs> yep though it's interesting because uh, for us sahabi and for those who aren't familiar for us he's, he's a he owns tristar gym in canada in toronto i think it is and he's a yeah, famous um jujitsu and mma coach he actually always says that you should not be sore after you're done training. And that's one of the things he preaches is not being sore when you're done. I don't know how he does it. Um, that's would, one of I my goals. I would to say that is, I mean, mm, that actually gets to be kind of a deep question, but in general, um, for a, a competitive athlete, you're probably not going to be experiencing soreness as much. Mm -hmm. Additionally, for a competitive athlete, um, overtraining is a genuine concern. Yeah. Um, I know that's kind of a, a crutch for more of the hobby level players. Oh man, I don't want to overtrain, bro. You're not even close to overtraining. Don't sweat that. Right. It's more of a motivational issue, but for a proper pro athlete where they're actually doing, you know, two a days, six days a week or whatever, um, you got to keep an eye out for the overtraining. So if you are a, um, a highly conditioned athlete, then no, you probably shouldn't be experiencing a lot of muscle soreness uh, after your training. Uh, but I think it's important too, even with soreness to understand the difference between um, like soreness during and very shortly after the event, whatever it was that you're doing, whether you're in the gym or doing some sort of athletic training, um, the soreness that you feel, let's say, for example, if you're you know doing bench press and you're cranking out however many reps and you're getting close to the, the max that you can do and your muscles are burning um, and you can call that a soreness but that's a completely different phenomena than what they call delayed onset muscle soreness or DOMS, uh, which is a soreness that you feel the next day and the day after that. Uh, those are, are different phenomena when, okay. when you're in the middle of the activity and your muscles are burning, that's a buildup of lactic acid inside your muscles. Mm -hmm. uh, and you start losing the ability to flush that out as fast as you're making it. So you feel that soreness. That's the, that's the burn, feel the burn. Um, the soreness that you feel a day or two after that's actually the, the micro tears that you have caused in the muscle, which is not a bad thing. Those, you know, micro tears are what actually stimulate the growth and, and make you stronger. Yes. Uh, and more often than not, at least for your average Joe, um, that's going to produce the sensation of soreness. Mm -hmm. And I think for, again, this is, we're not talking elite athlete, but for just normal folks trying to work out and stay fit, um, it's a reasonably safe idea to, uh, to anchor that or to associate that feeling with muscle growth. Meaning you go do a workout, you're sore the next day and you can kind of anchor that to, okay, good. I got a good workout. I'm going to grow and actually have that mm -hmm. as a somewhat of a motivator uh, personally, I find it as a good reminder to eat clean. If I'm in a good training regimen and I'm sore the next day, um, the, yeah, I tell myself, I don't want to waste that workout. I don't want to go through this soreness 
and not maximize it. So I'm going to eat clean, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, it's just kind of a constant reminder of, yeah, I'm trying to get physically better. I'm going to eat better. I want to lock all this in and, and make sure the work that I put in pays off in the end versus being all sore, but still eating crap and not, not being on your body's side for recovering. Um, then you're just not going to get to the same results as fast. Can you speak a bit about how getting in a good workout and then eating shitty can ruin the growth that you can achieve from eating well? Can you like break that down a little bit more? Yeah. And I would say I wouldn't call it ruin, but it's a failure to optimize. Okay. And in general, I think optimization should be the focus for someone who's uh, you know, training for some sort of athletic endeavor because the messaging that we get in general, if you remember like the old school food pyramid and, and all this stuff, or if you ask a doctor, Hey, should I take supplements or any vitamins? Like, no, you just need a healthy balanced meal. Well, the perspective that most healthcare professionals are looking at are survival. You know, is what you're doing going to kill you? No. Are you getting enough vitamins to not die? Yes. And that's kind of the, the goal for uh, most uh, doctors and medical professionals, and, and reasonably so for what they deal with, it makes sense. But for uh, athletes, you're much more interested in optimization and making everything as good as it can be. And in, on that front, yeah, there's a lot of things you can do to help, including making sure that if you're going to stimulate growth in your system, meaning you have a workout and you're a bit sore and your body needs to recover, you want to give it absolutely all the tools that it could possibly use to recover uh, as fast as it can and as much as it can. So if you're, if you're training for something athletic or just trying to quote unquote, get in shape, uh, think optimization, not just pure survival. Uh, and okay. in that sense, um, your, your diet is absolutely huge. Um, and yeah. I, I phrase it that way. Cause there, there are plenty of athletes that were naturally very talented work really hard. Like they put in the physical training, the physical work, um, but they eat like shit, which they can kind of get away with because they're doing these other things that will in fact stimulate growth. Even if they're not eating the very best, they're still getting benefits. Now it's not to say they wouldn't get even more benefits if they were eating better. That's, you know, pretty much universally agreed. Um, but for you know, a ton of different reasons, whether it's, you know, personality or availability or financial or whatever, you know, they may not just be eating as well as they should, but they still quote unquote, get away with it because they are doing, you know, the, the physical activity and, and getting the recovery time. Yeah. And George St. Pierre, I think is pretty famous for that. Just mm -hmm. he eats whatever the hell he wants and still kicks everyone's ass and has like 4% body fat. <laughs> yep. Well, Gary Tonin, same thing. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the world's greatest grapplers. And at least the time that the, you know, the video that I saw where he a little kind of a mini documentary on him, um, he went straight from training to some little like corner store and got a couple big, uh, cheeseburgers and all that stuff. And they're kind of giving him a hard time. Like you eat all that crap. It's like, yeah, just work it off. And to an extent that's true. You know, yeah. Gary is athletically talented and a super, super hard worker. So eh, it works out. If we tuned his diet, could he do even better? Yeah, probably. But that's his call. He's he's successful in the arenas that he is uh, is working in and competing in. So yeah. So what kind of things do does one need to eat in order to maximize or optimize 
those kinds of trainings? Like what was it maybe a better question or a more specific question is what did uh, you do when, uh, for those of our listeners um, who may have missed it, Dan, uh, he compete, he did competitive bodybuilding for a little bit when he was in his, in his youth. And um, so I'm curious, what are, what did you focus on to maximize, optimize your, your workouts? Yeah. So first thing we got to do is take into context what my goals were. Um, so for bodybuilding is just get your muscles as big as you can and try and get rid of all the fat and look quote unquote shredded. Um, so to that end, um, the, the first priority for what I was doing was making sure I was getting enough protein. So if I'm going to have a super hard workout and trying to let my muscles grow and, and get big, uh, the, the, Protein is quite literally the building blocks of that muscle tissue. So you want to make sure you have enough available protein in your system to help facilitate that. So that was kind of number one. And, and, and I, was, I went into that with the full understanding that um, it was probably a little bit too much protein, but I would rather err on the side of a little too much than not enough. Because um, there are plenty of discussions, particularly with uh, the, the small group of vegan athletes uh, and some other folks that say, well, you don't actually need all that much protein. Um, your body can only synthesize so much, blah, 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 blah. It's like, yeah, great. I get that. But I'm just going to, because it's not going to, I'm not eating so much protein that it's going to hurt me. Uh, so I'd rather err on the side of having enough. Now, fast forward 20 years, and now we're seeing the uh, the prevalence of like the carnivore diet and of course things like you know keto where there're huge amounts of protein and most people's bodies adjust just fine so that even kind of takes out the too much protein argument it's just not a big deal get plenty of protein what's the uh what what's the what what's too much protein like put it in terms of like a gram per pound of body weight well, gram per pound, that was actually, that was kind of my, my rule of thumb for protein. Okay. Um, but again, I mean, like I say, I don't, I don't know that in general, people are biospecific, but in general, I don't know if there is such a thing as too much protein. Yeah. Um, it's going to shift some of the systems that your body uses, uh, or, you know, kind of stress them a little bit. Your kidneys are going to have to work different. Your liver is going to have to work different, but it, the, the, Evidence so far seems like, yeah, most people can handle that just fine. Not everybody. Uh, Bio-individuality is a very real and important concept, but we're, we're talking mm -hmm. generals here. So um, for, yeah, for most people, you don't have to worry about too much protein. Um, I went, like you said, I went a, a gram per pound was what I was shooting for. And that's, that's a fair bit of protein. That's eating you know, a good amount of meat. That worked out great. Um, and it's probably more than the actual requirements specifically for muscle building. Um, but you know, like I said, air on side, too much protein. If there is such a thing and gram per pound, when you're working hard, when you are, um, doing vigorous, uh, resistance strength training, uh, and I would say grappling would count as that as well. Um, gram per pound is a good place to start. Yeah. Okay. So eating a lot of protein, what yeah. else? Then beyond that, and this is to show you how old school this is. This is when low fat was still kind of the, uh, the rule to go by. Mm -hmm. So I, I laid out my meal plan by, you know, figuring out the protein. And then second for me was particularly if I was trying to lose body fat is the caloric balance, meaning how much am I eating? So I need to make sure that, um, 
the, or the idea was in a workout, we stimulate muscle growth by breaking down muscle tissue. Boom. You did a workout. You need to recover. Okay. Now we're going to make sure that we have enough protein, enough building blocks for that muscle. So it can do that, but we want to have a small deficit calorically so that there's no surplus calories, which just get stored as fat. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit less calories than I was actually burning altogether. Then make sure that there's enough protein to sustain that muscle growth. And then kind of by default, uh, your body's going to get rid of the body fat because that's where, you know, where it's most likely going to make up for the deficit. If you're not strength training, this is kind of the catch. If you put yourself into a caloric deficit, but you're not strength training, you're not giving your muscles a, a reason to grow. You're actually doing the opposite because if your body is trying to find a caloric balance and you're not getting enough food, then it needs to make the system more efficient. Meaning um, your muscles require calories just to exist. Like when you sleep, your muscles are burning calories. So the more muscle that you have, the more calories that you're burning, whether you're moving or not. Obviously, moving makes it a lot more, but um, just to sustain muscle tissue requires some uh, calories. Uh, that's why we called, you know, muscles are your fat burning machinery. That was always a, a good tip for Mrs. Terwilliger who didn't want to get huge. Like Mrs. Terwilliger, you're not going to get huge, but if we, if you give you some more muscle mass, that's your fat burning machinery. Yeah. Um, so create a small caloric deficit, make sure we got enough protein. Uh, and then beyond that, it was just, you know, kind of keep it low fat. Again, that was the, uh, that was the standard wisdom back in the day. Um, and then, tweak as needed make sure you're getting some vegetables in there so we have some fiber and some vitamins um and i was supplementing at the time same thing uh and just stick with it you know be super consistent i would give myself one cheat day uh just kind of for the the mental relaxation don't go too crazy but you know that's when you can have your piece of pizza or whatever um but if you're consistent with that for the vast majority of people it's going to produce favorable results how uh how long out before your competition did you start the deficit and the, the protein intake and stuff? Was it just, I'm going to do a competition in one year. So starting today, no, definitely not that far out. And that was, you know, I only did it like seriously for a year. And then I was in the gym industry in general for several years. Um, so I never really got that really, really dialed in. Um, fortunately my genetic genetics were such that I actually started, um, cutting body fat a little bit sooner than I would have needed to just cause I, I can get lean pretty easy. It's, it's putting muscle on. That was tough for me. <clears throat> so I think I started probably 12 weeks out. I started getting into a caloric deficit, started doing more cardio to burn calories and then kind of ratchet that up a little bit. And if I remember correctly, I think it was about two weeks out. I started cutting carbs. Um, so brought those down really low, which helps a bit. Um, and then there's some like dehydration trickery you do the last few days that are, they have nothing to do with athletic performance or anything. That's just trying to make the scale. Um, but in general, just for, for the sake of a, a kind of a, an easy and slow and smooth, gradual, uh, fat loss for me, it was about 12 weeks out that I started cutting calories and like, okay. super strict with my diet. Yeah. 
do you know because uh, 12 weeks that's uh, most like mma camps are between eight and 12 weeks yeah. some are eight some i've heard of plenty that are 12 it, it varies yeah do you know why they're that's the the range for just physical endeavors in general, I wouldn't be surprised if other, even like say professional bodybuilders are doing a 12 week out program, something like that. I've, I've heard of similar things with like track and field. Yeah. I think that, and I'm a little bit speculating here, but I know that that is in line with, um, doing, oh, I can't forget the term of it. Um, when you, you switch up your training on purpose, uh, yeah. Periodization. There we go. Uh, for for a periodization protocol, um, twelve weeks seems to be for most people the range where you get the maximum benefit of changing things up, and that's the whole idea with periodization is uh, providing a new and different stimulus that your body has to deal with. Because yep. the whole point, the whole reason that it even works is your body's trying to adapt to be as efficient as possible. And if you're increasing the demands, if you're lifting heavier weights, then your body has to get stronger so it can handle those heavier weights, right? Um, but eventually it does do that and it gets more efficient at doing that exact same thing. If you like lift X amount of weight, eventually your body will adapt to the point where it can do that efficiently. And it needs a mm -hmm. different stimulus in order to get additional results and additional growth. And it seems that that 12 week period is kind of the sweet spot for how often you need to change it up. Um, you don't need to change it plateau. up. Yeah. That's, that's where it starts to level off. You don't need to change it up every day. I mean, you can make a case for it for just motivational reasons. So you don't get super bored, but in terms of just performance, that 12 week period is when most people start to plateau. So that's the good time to change it up. Okay. Um, and there's also, there's a, at least in my experience, when you start going beyond 12 weeks, that's when it gets mentally more difficult. You can kind of lock into a three-month project where you're going to be super strict and do everything just perfect. And then right about that 12-week period, it's, it starts getting real boring. <laughs> it's, it starts getting mentally challenging to stick with it. How long is this going to go? Like, if you tell yourself you're just going to do this forever, that is significantly more difficult than... Uh, having a finish line in mind. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm doing a 12 week program. I got two weeks left. I can see light at the end of the tunnel. I totally got this. Boom. You stay strong. If there's no ending whatsoever, then it's real easy to tell yourself, well, I can't do this forever. So I might as well quit now. You know, yeah, you yeah, yeah. that mental struggle. So it's interesting. This is a slight tangent, but we had talked uh, a couple of podcasts back about uh, inequality mm -hmm. and hard work and hard work. And what you're describing reminds me of that because I think you're right. Like the average person, let's say three months, right? Maybe two months can really dial down on something for intensely for a fairly short period of time, but I would not be surprised at all. In fact, of the literature that I have read, the people that are at the forefront of most any innovation, they don't have the three month problem. Yeah. It's like a, That's I will a do this for, I will do this forever, forever. Like I always go back to Elon Musk because he's, he's a crazy human, but he's like, I work 15, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. And I do it all the time. And it's and not, not disciplined. It's not disciplined. It's drive. 
Yeah. It's a huge difference between those two. Not to say yeah, he doesn't have to kind of, you know, exercise a little bit of discipline if, you know, he sure. wakes up and is not feeling it. But in general, once you kind of get in that mode, you're just going, you got the drive. You're on, you know, effectively autopilot in terms of your motivation to achieve whatever it is you're going after. Yeah. And uh, for anyone listening, because like I said, I do bring up Elon Musk all the time, uh, mostly because he's very visible and he's talked a lot about his, uh, what it's like to be Elon Musk. Um, do any kind of a search for any top performers, the ones who are like legitimately at the apex of their field. And I defy you to find one of them who's like, eh, I don't do much work. <laughs> like, yeah, not going to happen. I, I, and I mean that seriously. Like, these are the kind of people who I think they have that drive to where it, it, three months is a long time, but I think these people are just like, I'm going to spend my entire life. This is all I can do. Like, I, this is just what I do. You know, I just, I, I just fight or I sprint or I, you know, try and get to space or I, in the case of like Einstein, I try and solve mathematics and physics and the concepts of time. You know, it, this is just what you do. Um, anyways. Yeah. So 12 week regiment, um, it's, most of the time, I think that's slightly long, longer than what you would see in an MMA fight um, or an MMA camp. I think usually it's like eight weeks, but uh, my guess is that's probably more for injury prevention than anything else. Well, yeah, and um, that's that's super specific training as well. Yeah. So I, I really want to highlight that the more specific you get and the more elite of an athlete that you're dealing with, then all of this is subject to change based on whatever their goals are. So, uh, yeah. Did, I, did, did you look ever, ever look into what it is that, um, like professional bodybuilders did for their regiments, like say, um, uh, Arnold or some, this is the only one that's coming to mind at the moment. Uh, Lou Ferrigno, those kinds of guys, like the, the, the ultimate power lifters. Did you ever look into like what their regiments were for, pre-competition were they also doing 12 weeks or were they doing longer shorter do you know oh yeah for sure um it was all similar and similar, really, yeah. mind you this was pre-internet so we you know that's when you had to go out and buy physical books and shit to learn this magazine ma magazine magazines, dude yeah muscle media 2000 and all that stuff flex magazine yeah, yeah um, i remember flex yeah i had a subscription yep. when i was a kid yeah Heck yeah and granted excuse me specifically with magazines they got to come up with content every single month so mm. a lot of it either gets rehashed or kind of tweaked and uh it may not be 100 accurate as far as what the actual athlete is doing but that said um yeah most guys were you know around that 12 week period they they'll go into what they would call on season, like off season for a bodybuilder is when you let yourself get fat, which is a really bad idea, but it was common practice uh, back in the day where you just relax. They claim, well, I'm just trying to get big, man. So they would you know, lift a bit heavier, eat at ridiculous amounts of food, put on a ton of fat. Uh, it would get stronger for sure. Uh, but then you got to go through the work to get all that fat back off when you are now yeah. on season. Uh, so for most athletes, it's much more recommended to stay disciplined, stay ready. Um, don't let yourself go too much. You don't have to be fully in camp, but you know, don't get super big and fat before you have to take all that uh, back off. Yeah. Um, but at the time, yeah, it was, you know, right around that 12 weeks is when you're on season, you start cutting back on your calories. You start getting a lot more specific with your diet. 
Um, and then just as you get closer to the event, things get more and more refined. And like I said, you start bringing in the dehydration tactics and some of that nonsense. Yeah, I remember, uh, I don't remember many of the specifics, but there was a documentary out about C.T. Fletcher. Yeah. And uh, for those who are unfamiliar, you should look up C.T. Fletcher. I think the documentary is called The Strongest Man You've Never Heard Of. I believe Ooh, that's the okay. name of it. Yeah. I believe, but I'm not positive. I, I hadn't planned on talking about him, so I didn't look it up. But he, uh, if it's not, that's a great title because it, yeah, yeah, because he actually, from what I, if I remember correctly, he actually broke like set a Guinness World Record for like the um, heaviest uh, dumbbell like curl. He curled like a thousand pounds. Well, he didn't curl a thousand pounds. Um, it was it was a, but something heavy. <laughs> I thought I thought that's what it was. Like I said, I, I didn't look this up, so because I he for sure did not about, curl a thousand pounds. There's only seemed a like a lot of weight. Like yeah. deadlift a thousand pounds. That's what I thought. So, but he curled a huge amount of weight. Yeah, and um, I'm just gonna say a thousand, so it makes me sound good because if I'm <laughs> right, but I'm, I'm sure it's less. As soon as I said it, I was like, that's way too much weight. But uh, whatever the case, he curled an insane amount of amount of weight and he actually talked specifically about what you're discussing about how he would, he, he was fat. Like he was just morbidly obese, it, but absurdly strong, but he would eat yeah. like, you know, I don't, I don't want to guesstimate the number of hamburgers that he would eat. Cause I'll get that <laughs> wrong as well. It's probably a thousand hamburgers as well there you go. <laughs> a day, but he would, he was pushing like 300 pounds and was, you know, like you said, was absurdly strong, but had all this weight and he ended up, uh, um, I forget his whole story, but, you know, taking the weight off was obviously very hard. Um, that just reminded me of that. And then he's also got this, that saying where he likes to say the word fuck all the time Yep. and motherfucker. He likes to, he likes to yell at people. Uh, it's still your okay. motherfucking set. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> his catchphrase. Like, it's still your motherfucking set. Or one of, one of my favorites from him is, uh, he's, uh, when he'll like be lifting, He'll, he'll like look at his muscles and he'd be like, I command you to fucking grow. Yeah. <laughs> I used to think shit like that. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen uh, the video of David Goggins uh, bench pressing? Uh, oh, is that the one who's going to carry the boats? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, he's, he's just like <laughs> screaming shit as he's like lifting. Yeah. And he's, he just has all these kind of funny sayings and there's, um, he was working out with a guy and the guy talked about it in a podcast once about what it was like to work out with Dave Goggins. And he actually talks about this scene cause it was filmed and he talks about what it was like to be Dave Goggins spotter during this moment, because Dave Goggins is like looking directly into his eyes above him, screaming all this weird shit that he has no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> and he's just repeating it as he does like 30 reps. And the guy's just like, all right, David, you got this, David. Like, okay, don't kill me, David. It's <laughs> like, <laughs> Dude, he is an intense, <laughs> intense individual. Yes. No, very, very true. So, um, or to, you know, to even to steal his phrase, the David Goggin phrase, he is uncommon amongst uncommon men. Yes. That really sums it up well. Well, one of the things I was thinking about, um, partly why I brought up Dave Goggins, uh, when it comes to like peak performance, like getting to, you know, you mentioned having a camp and doing like a 12 week build up to your competition this sort of thing um ver and then you have like hobbyists who really have no need to do those sorts of things yeah um and then you have someone like dave goggins or and i would even put bodybuilders who stay in season all year 
um, other, you know, other athletes who do the same thing into this camp, they're uncommon amongst uncommon people. And I'm actually wondering how, like, I like David Goggins, but I cannot imagine that it's healthy what he does. Depends how you're describing healthy, I suppose. It's working for him. It is, but (laughs) I've... I've heard him talk about it and like, I've seen pictures on Instagram about, you know, uh, if you ever get a chance, like you can just Google Dave Goggins feet and you'll, you'll see, you'll see pictures of like the shit that he puts his feet through. And that's what I mean is like on one level, you have someone who is like hugely inspirational, you know, this individual literally, you know, he, he was too big to make it into the, into the military. He got into the military and like got way too large. Like he was very overweight. Um, he needed to, he wanted to run a marathon and he ran a half a mile and like or a quarter of a mile and like uh, one day and like collapsed. Like he, like he couldn't run, you know? And then he on like way overweight managed to force himself to run enough enough amount of miles to qualify for a marathon. Like he just like put per- perseveres through pain in a way that like 99.9% of people just can't do. Yeah. But like he, I think he ran when he finished a marathon, he like finished it with like two broken ankles and he okay. finished like 10, 10 miles or something like I know, a crazy number of miles in a marathon on broken ankles. Like just no one does that. Like yeah. there's a reason, that, there's a reason he was a Navy seal and an army ranger. Yeah. Like two of the hardest, like, thing like programs to ever go through in the world like full stop yeah like nothing is harder than those things and it's like he did both because he's fucking insane (laughs) when he also does you know these ultra marathons and shit just go for a hundred mile run yeah no big deal and he and and then he broke the guinness world record for most number of pull-ups done in a 24-hour period like i don't it and so it's on one level it's like okay like this is inspirational to, to even hear him talk and then on another level i'm like why would anyone want to subject themselves to that amount of pain? Well, that's, that's really the kind of the heart of it is, you know, what is your threshold for pain and what is your desired threshold from pain? Meaning um, Goggins has proven as I have several other people, but Goggins has done a great job of proving that what is physically possible is far, far beyond what most people think is physically possible. However, there are going to be trade-offs and you need to to understand those trade-offs and you need to get okay with those trade-offs. Are you okay with two broken ankles? David is. (laughs) It's quite literally like that. He's okay with that. He'll put up with the pain in order to achieve what he's trying to achieve, uh, which is incredibly inspirational. At some point, even for a motivated individual, it may not be worth that trade-off. If I break my ankles now and then in 20 years, I can't walk correctly, that was a bad trade-off. Right, exactly. So it's, it's, it's incredibly inspirational to see what's possible and to understand, or at least at the surface level, understand, because to truly understand, you got to do it. Uh, but to understand that you can push past your own mental limitations for way farther than you think you could, right? And, and even, you know, Goggins says that most people stop at 40%. They'll, they'll do a thing and say, oh man, that's all I can do. When the reality is they are physically possible of doing 60% more or 
depending on how you're looking at it, like 120% more. They stopped at the 40% mark. And their yeah. actual 100% is a long way down the road. But there's trade-offs for that. Um, you can't do it forever, mm-hmm. uh, even if you're Goggins. Um, but you can do it longer and farther than you think you can, provided you're okay with the trade-offs. Yeah, no, very, very true. And uh, it's it's sometimes terrifying to, to consider that um, – the human body can be pushed that far. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's super valuable to find that within yourself to yes. push yourself farther than you think you can. Jiu-Jitsu is great for this. Push yourself farther than you think you can understand that most of your limitations are truly in your head. Um, experience those trade-offs and there'd be a very high likelihood you will, you'll do a thing you didn't realize that you could do and maybe you fuck something up or maybe you're way sore the next day or, or whatever. You'll find your trade-offs and be completely okay with that. It's like, wow, okay, yeah, I get a little bit sore, but I can do so much more than I thought I could. That's great. Um, but I think there is a point, even if it's, even if you want to do more, if you're motivated to do more, it's just not in your own self-interest to keep pushing because you're going to do something, you know, serious long-term damage, permanent damage to yourself in a way that you'll look back on 20, 30 years and go, man, I wish I hadn't done that. Right. Um, but that's that, that point is typically so far beyond where you start to think that you've hit your max when you've hit your 40% that for the vast majority of people you say, yeah, you got to keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. And if you get to the point where you're actually doing serious long-term damage, then you'll know it when you get there, but we're not even close. So keep fucking going, Mrs. Twilliger. Right. So I looked it up and C.T. Fletcher curled, did a strict curl of 225 pounds, which is close to 1,000. <laughs> it's um, an impressive curl, man. It's still, yeah, it's still, uh, that's uh, one and a half of me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he was a strong dude. He he's super motivational as well. And no, he, yeah, he, he very much is. Yeah, if anybody's not familiar with C.T. Fletcher, um, I believe it was a year and a half ago. Um, he had some heart surgery and it was, it was a super big deal. So he can't he can't lift to the same degree, but he still has the same intensity. Um, so <laughs> yeah. it was um, a, a significant point in his life. You know, a year and a half, two years ago that sort of changed things for him, but really didn't change things for him. And that was about the same time that he was getting his, his huge popularity went on Rogan, you know, Rogan's the, the key for a lot of people went on Rogan, got super famous. Um, and then had to, you know, go through that heart surgery. He he's the type of guy. And, and I bring that up because watching someone as intense as he is, facing a real life or death situation and to see how he pulled through that, what his mindset was is just a beautiful example to see, you know, what's possible and and how you can pull yourself through adversity. Well, yeah, I think you, when you put yourself through these kinds of uh, tests, let's say with bodybuilding in the case of, uh, you know, CT Fletcher, handling problems outside of it become a lot easier. Yes. I mean, I've talked a little bit, we've talked some, a lot about jujitsu and I think I've mentioned once on the podcast that, uh, things that used to occur or that have occurred in my, you know, in, 
when I'm working, like in my job, don't seem as big of a deal as, you know, last night getting smashed by a 250 pound individual. Yeah. You know, like it's it just when, when your coworkers kind of in a bad mood and being an asshole, like it doesn't really compare to the hip pressure of a brown belt who's 250 pounds when they're mounted <laughs> on you. It's like, I, like, I really don't care about Brenda and her bitchiness, you know, when I have somebody literally trying to break my ribs. Yeah. Well, it, did, you know, it like, reminds me of, of fight club <laughs> where you say, right. when, when you fight, then everything else is turned down. And now yeah, the really, is right. that your blood? <laughs> exactly. Some of it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that, that's one of my favorite scenes from that show because it, uh, I started to realize very like early on in jujitsu that like the reality of that scene and it's just like I, you know, I, I it was so much easier to put up with bullshit in like the real world. Yeah, and it's like first off because it's like okay, like let's take jujitsu as an example, but it's like once you learn how to kind of do the things you learn in jujitsu, when people get angry at you in the real world, you're like. <sighs> I could be angry at this or I could just visualize choking you. And then the conversation's over. So I'm not really going to be angry. So look, there's like that part of it, which I'm sure all anyone who's listening to jujitsu is intimately familiar with. Just like, should I just like arm bar this person right now or just be nice? <laughs> but then it's like, oh, this is, yeah, it's like, but then the other thing is, you know, is, is this as bad as the, you know, the punishment that was inflicted upon me in my last training session? And it's always, the answer is always no. You know, it's it just always snow. I, I would, maybe if someone was like fired, maybe that might be a little bit worse. But even then, I feel like you probably handle it and just be like, eh, okay, yeah. I'm going to go train. And then I'll just get a new job tomorrow. Um, <laughs> uh, Travis Stevens, he's a, a judo Olympian, American judo Olympian. He's, uh, I think he's the only male athlete to medal in judo the American athlete, there may be some others, but he, he got second. I think he's the highest placed ever in American judo. Um, he did a podcast and he talked about how um, he has people all the time who come to his gym and they're like, I want to be an Olympic champion. And he's like, okay. And he always has a checklist for everyone in his gym, jujitsu, judo, whatever kids, adults to kind of, and it's individualized performance based. So like, what, what, what do they want to get out of their training for the next year? And then he actually like sits down with them and he breaks it down every quarter. It's kind of like, um, job, uh, progress reviews and stuff like that. Okay. But there's, you always get kids who come in and they're like, you know, I want to be an Olympic athlete. I want to, I want to win the gold medal. And he's like, uh, okay. Like, do you want to wake up sore every day? Do you want to wake up and train seven days a week? Do you want to break up with your girlfriend so that you can, or boyfriend so that you can travel the world and compete? Do you want to not go out with your friends to get a drink when they're going to hang out? Do you want to consistently train with broken fingers and broken ribs? Do you want to probably not be able to walk when you're older because your ankles are fucked up? And he just like goes through all of these things and it's like, no, I don't want to do any of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those are the trade-offs. But that, that, you know, and one of the guy who was interviewing and asked him, he's like, you know, what was it like? He basically was like, you know, what explain the sacrifices you made? Like what was it like the sacrifice to win, to win an Olympic medal? And he's like, it wasn't a sacrifice. This is my life. Which I actually have never heard anyone really say that. A lot of people, I hear a lot of people talk about how it like it takes sacrifice but I feel like 
there's a difference between those people who say that and then the people like Travis Stevens or like say, because I think he's like David Goggins. I don't think David Goggins would ever talk about how he sacrifices. Right. He doesn't, he never, I don't think he looks at life like that. I think he's more of, I just do shit. Um, but it was really interesting to hear the difference where he was just like, it's not a sacrifice. This is what I do. Like I just train with broken ribs and get up every morning and go to the East, you know, Eastern Europe and do judo. Like that's, it's not a sacrifice because it's what I do. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, yeah, that, that's just a case where he, his internal priorities are 100% congruent. It's he has the drive to do the thing and he will do whatever yeah. he needs to do to get the thing. It's like the old, uh, I think it's Lombardi quote, the, and I'll paraphrase this, but the will to win, is that what it is? The, it's not the will to win that matters. Everybody has that. It's the will to prepare to win. Yeah. That's what makes the difference. Well, that's what made, uh, at least Dan Gable credits that for his, you know, historic run through the Olympics, right? Yeah. He, he, he was, uh, and you, I think there's probably a legitimate debate to be had about whether or not what he was doing when his training was, uh, right. It was obviously not wrong cause he won, but cause what he would do is he would like wake up in the middle of the night and do like pushups and go work out. Yeah. Cause he would wake up and be like, well, you know, my Russian counterparts, it's, it's the morning time where they're at. Cause you know, there's like a 12 hour difference or whatever, and they're sleeping right now. So I'm going to get a workout in, or he's like, I want to be, I want to know mentally that he's like, for him, it was a big deal mentally that he knew that he was working harder than his Russian counterparts. Cause that's mostly who they were concerned with. Um, so that he could mentally prepare himself to win. And then he went on to win, but he was also most likely not eating enough, not getting enough sleep and overtraining. Right. He just well, happened to also be gifted enough. I think at least, you know, he didn't break down his body enough to be able to still succeed. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting how that worked, you know, where there's like this mix of, he probably could have easily trained more efficiently and like probably more healthily and still won. But at the same time, that may not have worked for him and his personality. He may have needed to have overtrained like he did to give him the mental edge to go over to the Eastern Bloc, you know, in the seventies and then take a gold. Yep. We'll do. And right. that's, you touch on something really important there, especially, especially when it comes to peak world-class performance in, in any discipline. Um, but the, the mental aspect of it at some point becomes even more important than the physical. And that's not to say anything less about the physical, the physical training, of course, is incredibly critical, Mm-hmm. And also you got to get your head right. Yeah. Uh, and there are different people have different ways of doing that. Whether it's Goggins screaming about who's going to carry the boats or, you know, Gable getting up in the middle of the night or Mike Tyson out doing road work at four 30 in the morning. And when somebody asked him, why are you running so early? This is well, I heard my opponent gets up at five. So I got to get up before. Yeah. Right. Right. All those mental games are, are really important and they're, to some degree personalized. So you can't really give the same prescription to everybody, but whatever it is that gets you locked in, in that zone and, and you'll know when you're there, right? When you're 100% focused on a task and you're doing the work to get closer to it, then that you'll know when you're there, right? So play whatever head games you need to do with yourself to get yourself to that point and maximize your training. No, very, very true. Um, 
I'll, I'll touch on two things. You talked about the zone. I'll come back to that, but because the, the zone is a very interesting thing to, to contemplate here. Mm-hmm. Um, in that same podcast, I was talking about Travis, Travis Stevens. He, he mentioned that he went to see a sports psychologist because he had done well at the Olympics. He medaled or won every major international tournament for years. But when it came to the world championships, which are different in judo and actually in wrestling and a few other sports, they're different than the Olympics. They have the world championships and the Olympics. And often people win one and not the other. It's hard to be at that peak level consistently through, you know, year over year. Right. Um, And he was consistently rated top five in the world um, for a long time for like five, eight years, something like that. And he never made it out of the second round of worlds. And so he didn't even come close to the metal runs hmm. and he was like, what the fuck? And he, he regaled a story about how he had a certain routine for getting ready before a match. And so he would always get ready about three matches before his match. Um, his thought being that it would give him time to kind of visualize everything and be prepared as he stepped on the mat. Sometimes judo matches can go really long because they have like a golden score rule. So uh, I think they do that in soccer as well. Like first per, or it's like a first person to get a takedown wins. That's the golden score rule, right? But that can go on for a long time if you go into overtime. And he said that uh, in one of his matches, he went into the little area to wait and like 45 minutes went by before he got onto the mat. And by the time he got onto the mat, he was exhausted and he lost to a guy that was more than beatable for him in the first round in overtime because he had spent 45 minutes amped up and hot. You know, he was like ready to go. And so he's like, went to the sports psychologist, like, what the fuck do I do? And they're basically like, you need to learn how to switch it on and off. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, he's basically in the, the loading box waiting, visualizing all the throws he's going to do. And then he does that for 20 minutes. And then his, he's like, my mind gets bored. And so my mind starts to play tricks. And then all of a sudden my opponent in my head d- gets out of my throw. And so then I get thrown and then I start to seeds of doubt come into play. And then I'm trying to like figure that out. And then I get exhausted from mentally visualizing. So she said, a psychologist was like, you need to visualize the sensations of the throws and what it feels like to walk onto the mat, but not the actual um, opponent. So you're just visualizing what it feels like to be in the moment, but then turn it on and off. And that um, I think during the Olympics in the semifinal matches, while he was waiting to go on, he said that um, he would, people found him before a semifinal match to like go into the finals because he won it and went to the finals. He had his feet up on a table and was watching TV. <laughs> Like after seeing the psychologist, he just like learned to like basically calm down until like a minute before he steps onto the mat yeah. and, uh, and, and move forward. But, um, and so that's getting into that zone. What's one of the ways you can think about getting into the zone is how to turn on that off that on and off, turn on that switch of I'm um, time to go hard. Um, but the zone is very interesting. Um, I, there's a technical name for it. Uh, but I can't remember the full name for it, but uh, it's, it's like an actual medical phenomenon, I guess, or psychological phenomenon. But often referred to as a flow state as well. Yeah, like a flow state. And um, I heard someone explain it once, and I thought it was very, uh, this is a, a very interesting way to think about it. It's if you were to draw a graph, and on one end, like the, the vertical axis, you have how challenging something is. 
mm-hmm. like a, the level of difficulty, let's say. And then on the horizontal, you have skill level. The flow is like the, the, the bisecting point in between, right? It's the even slope between them. So as it gets more challenging, your anxiety increases. And as you get a higher skill level, you get more bored with things. So if you're really adept at something and it's not challenging, you get bored. And if you're really bad at something, you're new to something and it's super hard, you get really anxious. So you want to thread the needle between something that's challenging to match your skill level. And so you see like, you know, uh, uh, just a, 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 a line that kind of cuts through both. Um, and that's the zone. The zone is where you're being challenged just enough to push you forward, but it isn't enough to like make you so anxious that you can't do anything anymore and you get frustrated. Right. Um, I actually think this is uh, one of the reasons why purple belts never show up to uh, beginners classes and warmups. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I mean, it, there's probably other reasons too, but it's like, it's almost like a universal truism. I mean, it's not totally true, but it's, it's a, a heuristic that it, once you reach purple belt, you show up late to class, you don't do warmups and you don't do beginners classes. And it's like, well, why? Because you're so good. You don't need to do that shit. It's because that you get bored because yeah whether correct or not, you feel like you've mastered whatever it is that's done in beginners classes and you've done 10,000 shrimps. That's actually one of the reasons I don't, I, I will, I'm actually going to stop doing and will not continue to do like shrimps and upas and uh, forward rolls and classes. Um, like repeatedly, because that's typical warmups include those things. And I think it's because once you do enough of them, it's like, well, now you're just bored and you're not doing them right. Like no one does shrimps correctly after like six months. <laughs> because you just do up and you just do up and down a mat and you're just lazy about it. Right. And then you complain about how shrimps, it's really hard to shrimp outside, you know, shrimp out of mount, the bottom of mount. And it's like, it's because you don't do shrimps right. So why not just only do shrimps when you're in the bottom of mount and you learn how to do them correctly because it's hard. Um, but, uh, but yeah. Well, I, I, can, I, like- I can give a reference to that. The graph that you're mentioning there that comes from a book called flow, the psychology of optimal experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, is available on Amazon. The author is, <laughs> I'm not even going to try. Uh, his first name, M-I-H-A-L-Y, the last name C-S-I-K-S-Z-E-N-T-M-I-H-A-L-Y-I. Good luck. But just look for flow. Um, and it goes into some of the actual research that's been done about the flow state. It explains that graph. Uh, it's kind of the the go-to uh, material for that topic. Fantastic book. Gets a little technical if, if you like that. You kind of nerd out on stuff like that. It's fucking awesome. But the yeah. gist is, like you said, you need to find something that is very difficult to do, but you are capable of doing it and do lots of that. That's your yes. flow state. So, yep. Yeah. Um, and that's actually... Uh... When I when I'd heard learned about that, and then I, I actually learned about that a couple of years ago, and then I came back to it um, recently today when I was uh, doing some research for 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 our podcast today. Um, I had like reintroduced myself to that concept. I'd just forgotten about it, and it made me realize that that's actually kind of how I approach most things, whether it's jujitsu or learning. Is I'm always trying to like embrace the the struggle, as it were. Yeah. of learning something. I'm trying to find the the peak balance of this is hard, but I'm not bored, but it's not too hard. Right. Um, you know, I talk a lot on the podcast about um, 
I like difficult things. I like the challenge of things. Um, and I think that's why I, I like those things more than I like whatever else it is you would like about learning or training jujitsu or any other sport. Um, you know, having good cardio and being in shape and shedding pounds. I don't really have any pounds to shed though. I've still lost weight, which is absurd to me, but, um, you know, getting the ta- getting the submission, like all that kind of stuff. I could g- mostly give a fuck about any of those things. I don't really care. Um, what I care about is getting into that zone of I'm learning, like I'm figuring shit out and understanding why I'm wrong and then training so that I can, get things correctly and be able to execute it at a high, at a higher level than I did yesterday. Right. Um, and it's still within your capability. I think like an example would be if you're rolling with someone who has a belt or two above you, like they're clearly better than you, but you can kind of understand what's going on. You're yep. like, Oh man, that was an awesome pass. I see what you did there. That was great. Versus say you're rolling with Marcelo Garcia and he's not being nice. It just absolutely <laughs> runs through. You don't even know what the hell happened. You're just getting smashed and you don't know why that's going to be super frustrating. But if you're going with yeah. someone who is better than you, but you can kind of pick up what it is they're doing. That's that sweet spot for learning. Yeah, I know. Very, very true. Um, I, uh, I talked about this uh, on a couple of podcasts uh, about uh, one of our Brown belts, Mark and how, uh, you know, he's, when you roll with Mark, it's, um, it's oppressive. Yes because his top game is so oppressive and it's um you can't move it's life is very difficult and his bottom game is very similar (laughs) he's like he's he's someone who's like oppressive from the bottom if you like stand and he's on his butt just just his grips and where he puts his body and his structure like he doesn't get out of alignment and so like he doesn't really need to do anything if he gets a foot on your hip and he's got a collar grip like you're fucked going for a ride yep yeah and so like that Marcelo Garcia experience that you're, you described, like that's kind of what it's like when you, cause he's a high level Brown belt. He's going to be getting his black belt soon. And so anyone who's basically a low level purple belt or below, like a new purple belt or below, it's going to have a huge problem with him until you figure out like how to break his posture and structure yeah. and base. And, and that's what you should be doing anyways, but it's hard cause he's good. Um, when I, the first, like, I don't know, year that I rolled with him, it was just, I, I just was on my ass in an, in pain, in a submission, like over and over and over. And every time he's like, nice job. And I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> um, Cause like, I, I didn't do anything. Like I just flopped over for you. So you could choke me like, you're welcome. <laughs> it can be super frustrating. But I, yeah. So I actually never got frustrated what I started to like, cause I, I like the challenge, but it at some point it was like, well, I'm missing something. Like he's obviously very good, but he's a human. So, and he's, he's my size. So it's not like he has physical advantages that I don't have. Like we're about the same size. He might be like 10 pounds heavier than me. So like he's technically may, way more proficient, but maybe if I simplify how I'm looking at approaching grappling him, that'll make my life easier. I'm trying to do all these things. And he's like five steps ahead of me or two steps or whatever. And then by the time I'm, I realize something's wrong, like I'm already fucked. You know, I can give you an example, like I stand, try and pass his guard or whatever. He gets a collar grip, a sleeve grip, anchors his elbow into his, you know, into his rib. So his my so his collar and a sleeve grip. I'm basically lifting his body, so he's not he's not curling me or using his lats to to hold me. So that's a problem because I'm trying to I'm trying to like pull on his entire body and stand up in a weird angle to break a grip. 
So there, there's one problem. On top of that, he's got a foot in my hip and I'm bent over. So I have no posture. And he's got very good structure through a very long, you know, limb, which is his leg. And so like, I'm just bent over. And by the time I realize that I need to solve all of those problems, I'm flying through the air because he's just sweeping me, right? It took me like six months to realize this. And then as soon as he gets a grip, I immediately learned how to neutralize it, or I learned how to neutralize it and then immediately start doing that. And then when he puts a foot on my hip, I immediately either lower my body or try and hip into him. So his foot is neutralized, you know, and then I don't get swept as much. I still get swept, but it's not as much, but my game is smaller. Like I'm not focusing on how to pass his guard. Now I'm focusing on how to not let him grip me, which is a totally different thing. And it's a tinier problem. Well, that that puts you right in that sweet spot though, because you can't identify, you know what you need to work on. Like, Oh man, it keeps breaking my posture. That's huge. Versus, and this, this happens with like brand new people. And it's, this frustrates me to no end uh, because it's so unfair. But if you get a new person that comes in, brand new day one or even first couple of weeks white belt whatever um and somebody just goes and absolutely wrecks them yes. so because they're new they don't even you know obviously they don't know what they don't know mm-hmm. they don't even know what to look for they just have this experience of someone who's absolutely dominating me and i don't know why and i don't know how and this just sucks yes which is like the worst thing you can do to a white belt um at least in a, a regular gym if you they're trying to come into a fight gym or something that's different, but for your just regular hobby level gym, that's so uncool. And that's going to chase away a lot of potentially really good BJJ players versus, um, you know, someone's day one. It's not a bad idea to put it on them a little bit just so they fully understand uh, the, the gap between where they are and where this other say a purple belt is. Like, oh, crap, this person knows so much and they absolutely kick my ass. Mm-hmm. But then you turn it down a little bit and you let the white belt work. Yeah. And yeah, maybe yeah. you walk them through it like that's a really bad idea to put your hand there. I'll show you why. But you're, you're helping them understand versus just blowing through them and then they're never going to come back. Yep. So They're uh, um, Preet Mickelson. He's an Estonian uh, jiu-jitsu coach and uh, he's – uh, Sean, who we've had on the podcast, it, it's Sean's estimation that he's about 15 years ahead of everyone else when it comes to uh, defensive knowledge in jujitsu. So he's wow. the John Donaher of defense in jujitsu. Um, you'll love him because turtle's his favorite position, and you like turtle, and you're very good at turtle. And so you should listen to pre and learn his turtle shit because it's it's absurd. Um, he's trying to to start a movement where turtle is considered a guard <laughs> but it's uh, uh anyways Slap he's, hands he's hel- turtle up <laughs> yeah right exactly but he anyway so um one of the how he teaches class uh reminds me a lot of what you're talking about and it, it actually reminds me of this kind of flow state that we're talking about as well and so he um he's very critical of a typical class not only like a typical three techniques a class kind of a structure and then we roll right and a lot of a lot of gyms do that they're like we're going to learn maybe they're maybe the techniques are coordinated so we'll learn a knee knee cut pass to side control get the underhook pull the person to the side arm bar three techniques and they maybe they maybe they flow together like that or maybe they're just three random techniques and then we're going to roll for the next hour he critiques that for multiple reasons but one of the things he doesn't like is that let's say you're doing a knee cut pass. There's like seven things you need to be aware of when you do a knee cut pass. 
-hmm. If you do it against someone who's resisting, you're never going to be able to do like a, a regular knee cut pass the same every time, unless the person is actually lazy or tired. And right. no, like, it's not really reasonable to be like, my jujitsu only works when someone's tired. It's like, well, then your jujitsu <laughs> doesn't work. Like, then your jujitsu doesn't work. That's your self-defense plan. I'm going to make them chase me for about a half a mile, get them good and tired, turn around. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you can make the argument that that Elio, you know, his jujitsu worked when people were tired, but he also made it work for the 90 minutes before fighting large humans. And then it also worked when he got tired. Like it worked in both situations. Like yeah. the whole point was to get people tired and then make it work and then use it. But it, it, if it didn't work beforehand, he just would have been fucked. Right. So one of the things that Priya does is he says, I don't want to start you in that position or it, let's say it's an arm bar from whatever position. He's like, I don't want to start you at the beginning or a triangle. What he'll do is he'll start everybody with a triangle or an arm bar, or um, maybe the ankle, your quarter guard, like the ankle is, uh, is hooked in, in, in a knee, knee cut pass. And then you have one move to finish. That's it. So let's say you're in a triangle, you have the triangle locked up and all you have to do is squeeze and it'll put everyone in that position. And then the person who's in the triangle gets to resist as hard as they want. Maybe they start soft at first, especially with someone who's brand new, sure. but then you squeeze, tap, do it again, squeeze, tap, do it again, go harder. And then if you're good enough at it, the person will, you know, pull away, go full Hulk and try and roid themselves out, you know, and break the legs with all your muscles. Mm -hmm. But you, you do that. So someone knows how to finish a triangle. And then you can get someone, he's like, I'll get someone who does finishes 20 triangles that way in the same amount of time it would take a normal person to do three triangles starting from guard. Yeah. So now someone, you have, you know, seven times the amount of triangles finished. So if you get to that position, this person now knows what to do. And then you let, then instead of locking the triangle up, you just have their, their legs crossed in a high guard, but posture is broken. So you slide the leg over across the neck, lock the legs up, squeeze, go right? And then you slowly work your way back and you add more chaos to the movements as they get better. And then maybe if they get to a point or if they're high enough belt when you're doing the drill, you can start them from guard and have them go. Because if you put a black belt with a white belt, let's say, or even a blue belt, and you start them from guard, they'll probably, and we're just drilling, even with resistance, they might probably still do 20 triangles from the guard because they're good. Yeah, They don't know how to do a triangle from guard, but a white belt's never going to do that. There's too many moves. There's yeah. too many like movements and concepts and like things that you need to take into account. And if someone resists, forget it. I I don't know if you'd ever find a brand new, like a white belt within like the first two months who would be able to actively just do a triangle with somebody who's resisting. And that's all, that's all that they did. Cause there's a lot to know. And um, that kind of, that, that reminds me of what we're talking about, about that flow state is you want to add just enough complexity so that it's hard, but they, but you succeed so that you're not bored or so that you're, you're continually interested, but you're not bored. Right. Um, and, uh, I've been doing that with, um, the zoom classes I've been doing. And then I, with uh, the, the, my, um, I had my first uh, youth class yesterday and, uh, did that with the kids who were able to show up. And, um, my hope is that over the, my, I'm going to be monitoring it with all the youth kids as they slowly come back to classes to see, how that kind of training works, you know, show them a submission or a pass or a position or whatever, an escape and make it as easy for them as possible to succeed. So all they have to do is like one tiny movement 
and then they're done and then peel it back a bit and add a little bit of chaos. And then if we have time, you know, maybe over the course of a week or a month, we'll get it to where they're in the worst position possible. And then they can get out because they know how to do everything else and done it a lot. I'm excited to see how that works. If it, if it does. Um, it makes sense. I mean, it's, it, I think that what is often overlooked is the importance of uh, quality repetitions. Mm-hmm. And at, at the outset, everybody's going to agree with that, of course, but by quality repetitions, I mean, um, and I'll refer back to Bruce Lee. I think it was Bruce Lee. I said it, um, but it, practice does not make perfect practice makes permanent. Yeah. Perfect practice makes perfect. I think I got that right. Um, but the idea is if you, particularly if you're doing kind of a long complex sequence for a technique in jujitsu and maybe there's, you know, four, five, six discrete steps in order to get to the finish. Um, if somebody's not already familiar with it, if this is all 100% new, then either a, because it's a longer technique, it just takes more steps to get there. You're only going to get so many repetitions in a class. Yeah. And B, there's that many more areas where something is going to come up as it does to mess up whatever it is you're trying to do. And now you have to deal with this new thing. And that makes it harder to remember the first thing that you just did, or it makes it so that you don't get to the end point. You don't actually practice the finish because you don't get there. You keep working on trying to get the pass done or whatever the case is. Um, but I very much like the idea of kind of doing it in reverse. Let's get you all the way to the finish and just get a bunch of reps so that you can get that feel down so that you're, you start to, to wear in your neurology for that finish. And then we'll back it up. Let's get you there. So once you're there, you already know what to do, but here's, what's going to be in your way. Just keep working that, keep working that and then yep. uh, work your way backwards from there. That, that makes a tremendous amount of sense. I like I'm ex- that yeah. I'm excited to see how it works. I mean, if you think about it from a chaos and order standpoint, um, if you want to go a Taoist, you can think of it as like a yin and yang issue, but um, often jujitsu in jujitsu, you know, you'll, you'll be taught a move from a position where everything can happen. And then you'll simplify it to the end point, which is where nothing but the submission can happen. Mm-hmm. Cause it's still like, you're still getting into a position. There's still concept concepts you need to, you know, to take into account when it comes to submitting someone, but ultimately it's a position where there's only one option and that's like a broken limb or someone gets choked out. Right. And so you're going from the most chaotic to the, the least chaotic, but for someone who's new, it's like, it's all chaos. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's all chaos. And like, you don't generally teach people that kind of stuff up front. Like, like think about teaching a kid to read. You don't just like throw a book at them and then just say, go. Here's Hamlet. Let me know when you're done. Yeah. You know, and what, what you do is in, say with like reading or like math and some other school subjects, like you, you, you tend to do a more hands-on approach. So you just kind of teach it piecemeal and then let them figure it out. So th- there's got to be some amount of um, letting them get their feet wet, so to speak. Um, and I think that's true. That's what the resistance I think is really is you, you don't give them all the answers. You give them things that are guidelines that'll help them. Yeah. And then they can figure out a lot of the problems on their own. But when you're trying to teach someone to read, you give them like a letter right? That's it. Mm -hmm. This is one letter. And I'd be curious how many five-year-olds in kindergarten know how many letters there are in the alphabet and how long it takes them to realize it. Cause you don't just like throw all 26 and you're like, here you go. 
must make words. It's like, no, you got to start small <laughs> first. And then you introduce chaos. Then you introduce what words are versus letters. And then you introduce, introduce strings of words into sentences. And then you introduce different meanings of words. Like you get more and more complex as you go, not, not more and more finite. But yet it seems like we, jujitsu is like, no, we're different. We're special. You know, we're going to do all the shit and then we're going to reduce it to a fine point. So my goal is to try and to test the reverse theory of why don't we do what basically everyone does, which is like teach things that work as a white belt and a black belt. Like as a wrestling is an example, you learn the double leg on day one and then Jordan Burroughs double legs, everyone in the Olympics. Like you don't learn a black belt wrestling move, right? You, you just get better at the double leg. Yeah. Right. And so there's things that just work and then you use Side them. Note. Kyle Dick just beat him. Did he really? God, going to the I Olympics. To, that is impressive. Sorry, go ahead. That is. <laughs> I just no, that, watched that yesterday. I was like, oh shit. I haven't. Yeah. I haven't. I haven't kept up on uh, update uh, on wrestling stuff in the last few months, which I'm bummed about because I actually really like uh, Kyle Dake um, and David Taylor. I like David Taylor more. He seems nicer to me than Kyle Dake. Sometimes Kyle Dake seems like an asshole, but um, but I. I still like him and uh, he's an impressive son of a bitch. And the fact that he beat Jordan Burroughs is absurd to me. Yeah. Um, have you ever watched videos of Jordan Burroughs doing a blast double? It's absurd. Like, I've seen a few. Yeah. Dude's explosive. I, yeah. <laughs> I I really want to see, I would love to see like someone high level, like Gordon Ryan or any other high level grab, like a jujitsu guy, um, take a blast double and try and guillotine him. Yeah. That'd be fun to see. Cause like, that's one of the big issues with, with, with wrestlers coming into jujitsu is they get choked a lot because in, if they have, if they have good form, their heads are up, their foreheads are into the side, they're driving to the side. It's hard to guillotine. It's hard to guillotine them, but you know, depending on the type of takedown you're doing, like their heads come there's they have good alignment, but their heads are down a little bit. Right. So you can generally get to the neck. And if you time it right, it's not that hard unless they just blow you out of the water. Well, you can do what would be kind of the ultimate sin for a wrestler and you can jump guard while you're snagging that guillotine. Well, they never yeah. trained for that scenario because who the hell is going to jump? They're just, you know, giving up a wrestling match, but of course, yeah. grappling's different. So they have to adjust and, and be aware of yeah, these yeah. new threats that come at them when they do a, a blast double. And so I'd, I'd like to see, uh, um, I'd like to see some like Jordan Burroughs or someone, uh, Dave Taylor, even because Dave Taylor's bigger, um, so he'd be more, I think, better equipped to to go against someone like Gordon Ryan because he's a little bit more aside. So he's still, even though he's jacked, he's still small compared. Gordon is huge, but um, but yeah. Anyways, uh, yeah, that training method of like just starting things simple and then getting more chaotic. It seemed like that's how basically every other thing or endeavor people are taught that way. They're specific and then more broad and i think jujitsu gyms by and large they do the opposite and i don't understand exactly why i never really thought about it until recently when i was starting to get more uh, during the pandemic uh, get more into uh um teaching and like teaching pedagogy and like how to teach properly and um sports psychology and child psychology that kind of thing and how it's used and it's like okay well you got to start small first and then work your way up. And then I'm like, well, wait a minute. Like there are, there are ways to teach big concepts and keep them, you know, manageable, but most gyms 
most ways I've ever learned has always been pretty chaotic at first. And then it's really hard to replicate when you roll 20 minutes later. Yep. Like, I'm not going to lie. I, I can probably count on one hand at most two, the number of actual triangles that I finished in a live sparring session period. And it's definitely on one hand with adults. Yeah. It's not my go-to that's part of it. I, um, but they're also not easy until you wrap them a bunch and understand the nuances behind it. They're easy with kids because kids don't understand posture. Well, the kids are, yeah, they're, <laughs> well, they're a little bit like, like, you know, yeah. So like you, you can to some degree, just use, use your size advantage and strength advantage. If you need to triangle but, the fuck out of little Timmy. Yeah. But <laughs> what I found is like, you know, you learn how to roll really light with kids because you, otherwise you just hurt them. So we, whether they're seven or they're 14, like you learn how to roll lightly, unless you get some 14 year olds that are very good. And then you, you, you need to kind of amp it up because they're good, but you have to, otherwise you, you just hurt them. But you also learn how to, um, to recognize the fact that they don't have, they don't understand alignment and posture base and structure very well and so they'll frequently put their chins to their chest when they're like in guard or they'll like have a bent they'll have a bent spine or those kinds the kinds of things where you're they'll keep a hand inside like on their on their stomach you know and you're like well you're just like giving me a triangle now like right all these things where like i notice them i'm like okay i'm just gonna triangle it and so you know be able to make it work but that doesn't work against a purple belt like you don't ever find a purple belt who has broken structure like that. Like their, their posture is always up in the guard because otherwise you're fucked. So most triangles you learn don't work because you learn how to like break the posture without resistance. And then you get a leg up and then, you know, it's like, it doesn't work that way. Like you, you got to really fight for it. So start small first and work your way back up. I'm really excited to see how this, how this, uh, um, how this works with the kiddos. I'm going to laugh in like three months all my kids are like just masters of triangles and chokes <laughs> because they just get like hundreds of reps a day at them. Just like, yeah, like <laughs> just it. put them in the rear naked to squeeze, 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 you know, for, for 30 minutes. Just <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I can see how it's a little bit counterintuitive starting, starting from the end essentially uh, and breaking it down backwards where typically you want to start from the beginning. That would seem to be the most intuitive. Uh, yeah. You know, we're, we're doing a pass to side control to a choke. So let's start with the pass. Um, but working it backwards, um, yeah, the more I think about that, the more that makes a whole lot of sense. I think people do it. Um, one of the reasons I think it's done this way is it's been done that way for a long time. Yep. First off. And so it, it's how I learned it, it. It's how my instructor learned it. It's just yeah. how we do it. Yeah. Right. And on some level you get, you know, um, aware blue, blue belts who are aware, you know, it's like they've kind of come into their own and they, 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 they understand sort of where they are on the mat. Cause you know, by the time most people get to blue belt, like they have a fundamental understanding of jujitsu and generally self-defense um, itself, but you still put them with upper level blue belts and purple belts and, they don't really like fully grasp a lot of the nuances of like the positions, right? They have a fundamental understanding of it, but it's like, they don't, you, you could ride a bike and not fall over, but once you hit a jump, like it gets really hard. Like yeah. 
knowing where to put your body. It's a low resolution understanding. Yeah, it's a very low resolution. Like, I, I vividly remember this personally, like the first, like my first 18 months as a blue belt, I was like, do I even, do, I don't deserve a blue belt. Like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And then I'll, then I'll grapple with white belts. I'm like, okay, I kind of know what I'm doing. <laughs> but against other blue belts and purple belts, it's like, I, I don't, and then someone will explain something. I'm like, oh, that makes more sense. This, this is why I keep getting choked. And then you slowly acquire that. And then you get a, you get a mat sense for where your body needs to be. But showing moves the way I described, you know, where you show three techniques and maybe they're related, like that can work when you're, you have an understanding of how all the moves chain together. Like I could run, I could go to a class like that and understand how to get from open guard you know, to a knee cut pass to the side, pull a person to their side, step around and do an arm bar. Like this is the typical arm bar that you would see, right? Like, okay, that's hard to execute in practice. Someone resists, I'm not going to get them to their side. Like it's not easy, but there are other ways you do it. But uh, like, I, I can, I can make my way down that rabbit hole, no problem. But I've also been doing this for five years. So, um, but for most people, that's not intuitive and it's hard to understand. And there's like 10 concepts. Like, I don't mean like 10 moves, like 10 concepts, like fundamental concepts and movements that you do in all of jujitsu in that sequence. Yeah. Like, you have to like learn all of those and understand how to do those and how they interact in different positions before you can really master those. And so like, there's a lot going on there. And well, it's, uh, I mean, it's jujitsu is infinite, which is, yeah. it does pose the problem of, you know, how do we assemble this information and present it in such a way that someone who doesn't know things uh, yeah. can understand it? Um, so it's, it's a tricky problem, but I like no, it is the first idea. Um, that's, I just remembered the other thing. I think the reason why people do this is that I think that, and this may just be an American issue, I'm not sure, but people come in, they want to learn things. It's, it's fun to learn, even if it's hard to learn like dynamic movements. But if all you do is, let's say you're in an armbar position, like EBI overtime armbar, but minus the grips, because the grips are a whole thing that outside of just the armbar. So you're in on your butt, legs are across your butt, you got the arm, you're hugging the arm. All you have to do is lean back across your thigh. You don't even need to bridge. You just lean back, you get the armbar. If you do that for 20 minutes, that's kind of boring compared to attempting to do a knee cut pass to the side. Like it, it's, it's very boring compared to trying to isolate an elbow from Mount cross the center line, bring your knee up to the head, you know, and then just go through your S Mount and then an arm bar. Like one is very passive and one is very dynamic, even if you don't understand a lick of it. And so I think part of it too, is that my, my guess would be that instructors are like, if I don't teach new students, all these cool things, they won't be interested and won't want to come back. Dude, I think you're 100% correct there. And that's, and that's a problem. It's not without merit. Probably I mean, it, not. It's, yeah. it's, you know, it, it's a consideration. I'll give them that. Um, but I think it, it can get in the way of more effective teaching. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, that's the other thing I'm excited to test out is like, will cause I, I teach the youth classes and uh, um, not really the adult classes. I'll be teaching some for the next month or two while our instructors uh, getting vaccinated, but the head instructor, but um, Brian, but I'm excited to, to test it and see if the youth students who sign up, who are new, if they get bored from doing that, mm -hmm. or if they're still engaged, my, I, my, my guess is that they're going to be engaged because they're winning. Yeah. Right. They're like, they're, 
let's go back to the armbar position, they're doing arm bars over and over again, and they're learning how to do an arm bar versus getting shut down by one of my teenage green belts who would just fuck them up, you know, because they're good. It's like, well, put them in the position where not even I can get out of the arm bar at that point. Uh, maybe I could because arm bars, you know, there's some fine points of arm bars. And so as I learned to work my shoulders and turn, turn the arm and stuff to not get arm barred, like they're not going to really understand, but generally speaking, even on an adult, they can pinch their legs, lean back and bridge. You're going to get arm barred. Like there's only so much you can do. And it's like, okay, that success, repeated success makes you excited. And you're like, well, let's go to the next hardest thing. It's like, okay, well, let's try and do an arm bar from S mount. All you got to do is swing the leg over and fall. That's hard, but let's do that. You know, and then you just kind of work your way backwards. Yeah. We'll see. Hopefully I think all my kids don't just drop out in droves because they're bored, you know. But <laughs> I think what can help with that is just make sure they do something super fun at the very end, like wrap up class. Typically it's just rolling or maybe specific yeah. or something. But you know, let them well, have fun with that. If it's kind of yeah, um, maybe not it's just maybe not as engaging in the sense that they're getting new stuff. I mean, you just be focusing on this one aspect, which is really important, but then make sure there's something a little fun at the end, a little bit of dessert, if you will. Um, yeah. And with kids, it's games. The, the biggest yeah. thing with kids is you need to give them very little information and then give them a game to play with the info. Yep. That's the big thing with kids and adults are that way too, but we just, uh, we forget about that. Yeah. But uh, they, they have better attention spans. Yes. And they can, they tend to recall information a little bit better. And so, um, I think universally the best learning doesn't feel like learning. Exactly. And, uh, so, you know, and Brian, our our instructor, he's very good at this with kids is there, it's all games. Um, and so I I really, I actually, I'll be changed. I change, I do my classes differently than he does, but I still do a lot of games. Um, I just do different games than he does, but, um, kids love it. You know, when it's like, okay, so I'm going to show it, it's going to be easy. You're going to win. And then for the last half of class or the last portion of this, you can both try and win versus only one of you. Cause often, you know, especially if someone's new, if they lose too much, they get frustrated. So it's like, let them win. Let's the whole goal is to get this person to know how to do an arm bar. So if the person on bottom is always getting out, it's like, well, fuck now we're just doing arm bar defense and that's different, you know, so you got to let them win. And then at the end, it's like, okay, now go. Now try and get out, right? right. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, it, it'll be, um, I'm definitely excited to uh, to do that. I'm curious to bring this kind of back to what we started at the beginning of the podcast, um, this incremental learning and this incremental growth, how this relates to your training regimen when you were training for your bodybuilding competition. Like I, I assume that you were not every day going into the gym maxing out redlining all the weights that you did so today i'm doing leg day so i'm just going to do is the heaviest squat i can do and the heaviest calf raiser and all that shit and then tomorrow i'm doing biceps so i'm going to curl as much as possible like i assume you were like incrementally growing the weights that you could lift to maximize you know, your gains right yeah for sure um and it's not to say i didn't go to failure um, even if there's times for that, right. Where you need to do that. Yeah. And, and that for me kind of led into some of the mental aspect of, of just getting myself to, to push hard, but in general, um, I would set myself a range of repetitions for any given exercise. So the common wisdom at that time, and, and probably still is, is for maximal hypertrophy and hypertrophy is when your muscles get larger 
Now you can get stronger muscles without getting larger muscles. It's absolutely possible. And that's a slightly different training method, or you can train your muscles to have incredible endurance, but they're not any bigger. And in terms of picking up something heavy, maybe they're not that much stronger, but they can go for a super long time. Or you can just try and get them as big as possible. That's hypertrophy. That's, you know, specifically what bodybuilding is all about. So the, the rep range, like maximal rep range, typically is thought of between like eight and 12 repetitions is the sweet spot for stimulating hypertrophy. Uh, for a power lifter, you're looking at six, maybe four, maybe even just two repetitions of something really, really heavy. Uh, that leans more towards a strength gain. And then for endurance, you can do, you know, 20, 50, 100 repetitions of whatever it is you're doing. And that's going to work on more of the endurance systems. Um, but for me, uh, again, just, and this is just like typical gym workout stuff, you know, go for that eight to 12 rep range. So I would pick a weight for a given exercise and the absolute max I could do that day was, you know, eight or nine, like I absolutely to failure bang, maybe a couple force reps. Cause it's just get psycho. Um, but eventually, you know, maybe a month down the road to come back to that exact same exercise, the exact same weight. And I just busted out 13. Yeah. Now it's time to go up. And so I increase the weight, maybe I only get eight of those, maybe shit, I'm only get six of those. Like, okay, we're going to work on this until that crosses that 12 rep threshold and just keep growing it from there. That was, that was kind of the method that I used. Nice. And uh, was it uh, sets of eight to 12 or just like one set of eight to 12? Typically three sets Okay, was, was what I was doing, but yeah, that, yeah, that's what I used to do when I, when I was lifting um, free weights and stuff uh, years ago and um, I got pretty big. I was I was pretty top heavy. Um, Getting yoked, son. Yeah, I, I was. Uh, yeah, I was. I was swole, as they say <laughs> on in, in in Jersey Shore, I think. Um, <laughs> but it, now with my lifting, because uh, I'm doing uh, resistance bands, which I I love. By the way, I, I can't get enough of those damn things. If so, if you you should get some as well. If you're gymming it up and stuff i i have like no joint fatigue that's the that's the biggest thing mm. i noticed okay because because it's consistent resistance it, it, variable of course based on where you grab the bands but it's consistent resistance throughout the entire lift and so there's no stop and starts and which can cause the muscle fatigue right uh, or not the muscle the joint the joint pain because you're lifting and stopping and then you're letting like with dumbbells in particular like you lift and you have as you lift from the bottom all the way up to the top you have you know you, you have the, 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 the um, you're activating the muscle but once you get to the top it stops and then you let go and you got to restart and it can be hard on the joints especially as you lift heavier and heavier weights right and so yeah. uh i've avoided that which has been awesome i get i get some crazy good pumps um but i haven't had any joint pains at all in a year and it's been awesome and yeah, um very good yeah and i do uh i do four sets for most of my lifts sometimes i'll do a hit workout where i'll do like one minute of a of an exercise and then a 30 second rest yeah. and i'll either vary it and do like a full body style hit maybe i'll focus on one muscle group as opposed to others but say it'll, i'll do like 12 or 15 exercises lifts with 30 seconds rest in between and then of them all might do like six for one muscle group. So I'll get focused on a little bit more or I'll just do like 
six, eight, 10, depends on the, the muscle group, different types of lifts for that group in a hit workout and be done in 12 minutes, mm-hmm. or I'll do four sets, um, a set of 20 at a lighter weight. I'll try and peak at 20, like the 20th rep should be hard. Right. And then I'll do two sets of 10 with um, a heavier resistance. So either I, I grip deeper into the band or I get a heavier band and then I'll go back to the original band and do a 15 or a, a, a set of 15, but double speed. So I'm going fast. Okay. Yeah. And the whole time I'm trying to keep the tension for at least 30 seconds, 30 to 60 seconds. So if, um, if I do 10 reps, I, I want like, you know, one second to a lift and then tw- two seconds to extend like to whatever concentric, um, whatever the eccentric e- that's what yep. it is yeah, yeah um and so like i want you know three seconds per total rep right to, to really get the um consistent variable tension throughout the the whole set yeah um i was uh there's a, a, a bodybuilder guy that i i follow and um he i came about him via social media algorithms so that which is terrifying, but it works. So I like him. And so um he's the one who got me into the resistance bands. And uh he talks about like why bodybuilders tend to do lift similar ways and the purpose behind having the 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 consistent tension in your muscles and how that stimulates growth and how to choose um proper sets and reps for weight training and stuff and what you're looking to do. And I'm looking less for like huge growth and more for I'd like to get bigger, but it's not really a, I would just like to have more endurance. Yeah. It's more conducive to jujitsu to combat the muscle fatigue from training hard. Right. Well, and, I think um, there, there's a, there's a isometric component that is uh, specific to jujitsu and, and grappling arts in general, that is often not addressed with your standard, you know, bro science gym workout. Yeah. Bro science. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that can, that can add a, a good benefit to a jujitsu player's game. And isometric just means you're holding one position. Um, yeah. so you, you know, do a repetition of whatever you're doing. And then at the midway point, just stop and count okay. to 10 and eventually yeah. maybe shaking and stuff, but you can still hold it. Like you can lift X amount of weight. You can hold a little bit more than that. And you can safely lower even more than that. So you can utilize those different aspects of, you know, maybe, you're working on explosivity. So you want to lift and push as quickly as you can again yeah. for, for whatever exercise and, and you do your sets like that. And that can work on explosivity um, for a grappler isometric, just being able to hold a position, hold a frame, hold a grip is very important. So then you would, you know, pick a slightly heavier weight that you can just kind of hold in position at halfway and hold it there for what's going to feel like an eternity. That's one thing. Um, and then you can even kind of go the flip direction of specifically eccentric training, meaning you have a weight that is actually heavier than you can lift. So you have someone help you get it into whatever the locked out position is, you know, say you're doing bench press. So all the way pressed out, you got a spotter and then you just slowly lower it down. So it rests on your chest and he helps you get it back up and you slowly lower it down and you do a few uh, reps of that. Um, and again, particularly for bodybuilding doing, the eccentric training like that can get some, uh, some good size out of your muscles. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's all kinds of different stuff like that that you can tweak. No, it's fat. It's fascinating. I've been trying to look more into, uh, um, just different types of ways to, to keep my muscles in shape. Yeah. Like I said, I, I don't really care about getting bigger. Um, 
I sure as hell don't want, I mean, bigger, like a bigger traps would be nice. So I'm harder to choke, <laughs> you know, but I'm not trying to necessarily get bigger shoulders. I don't like you're harder to triangle with bigger shoulders, but it, you're also, if someone can get their legs around you, you're easier to triangle because there's no space. So I, you know, it, right. it's like, I, I'd rather be able to just squirm my way out. <laughs> <laughs> being honest. And I find it's much more beneficial to have muscles that don't fatigue as easily. Yeah. And that's a, that's a very different training protocol than the standard uh, gym yeah. workout. You know, it's a and that's, whole lot of reps. It's a and that, whole that's lot why, of yeah. yeah. And that, that's why um, I gravitated towards the the sets I was talking about is that um, the guy specifically mentioned, he's like, if you're looking for to make, to get endurance, you know, you want to do a slightly higher reps. You want I want to grow, you know, and get stronger. So you have some shorter reps, um, to make it hard, but, and to get a little bit of strength, but, um, I'm probably going to change it up a bit too, just to, um, see what happens, maybe go up to 30 reps or something, do a couple of those. I don't, I like playing around with this kind of stuff. I like shocking my body with different ways to do things so that it keeps it interesting. Yeah. Um, keeps me in that, uh, like we talked about, keeps you in the zone, right? You yeah. throw something new and allow your body to adapt and rise, rise to the level of whatever that challenge is, and then tweak it as you need it as you go. Yeah. Speaking of the zone, actually, that made me think of uh, a tool that may be helpful for people. Uh, and it's using a, a psychological concept called an anchor. It's been around forever, but it, it basically utilizes the, um, the fact that your mind will link things together in such a way that it makes it easier to recall certain states. Uh, here's an example. If you have, you know, an ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend, uh, or maybe even someone you're still with, but someone from years ago that like when you first got together and everything was all fucking magic and roses and pixie dust, when you first meet someone that you're into and there's a song that comes on, and, you know, maybe that becomes your song or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. But if you go many, many, many years after that, maybe you haven't seen that person in many years, but the song comes on and not only do you think of that person, but you remember the exact state that you were in uh, that's associated with that memory. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's an anchor to recalling a, a, a mental state that you've been in in the past. Uh, it's been around forever. That's kind of the... Um, the the root of different um uh, what's the word i'm looking for when uh like a mnemonic devices player, uh, it's sort of like uh, uh like superstitions kind of like a, a okay. baseball player will have their lucky bat or their you know yeah, their lucky yeah. socks or, or things like that and th there's actual value in that even if their socks are nasty as hell uh but it's a tool to get yourself back into a specific and desired state and you can do that with the flow state. What I used to do, or I'll, let me explain the concept first, is um, you need to come up with some sort of a, like a unique input, a unique stimulation for yourself that you can associate with the desired state. And that could be anything from, you know, your, your favorite song. Like if you have a certain song that gets you super pumped up and you always play that when you work out, that's going to get anchored to being in a super fired up state for your workout. Um, but you can also do that with a, like a physical behavior. Um, if you figure out something that maybe like if you pinch the webbing in between your thumb and your forefinger in a certain way and kind of rub it, like you never do that in real life. 
So it's a unique stimulation. You're not going to, you're not going to find yourself doing this on a regular basis um, and eliciting this response at an inappropriate time, right? Mm -hmm. That would be weird. It's kind of like uh, if you have the song that you super fired up in the gym, but you also hear it, you know, 20 times a day, other places, it's going to dilute that experience versus yeah. if the only time you hear that song is when you're ready to just throw some iron, then it's going to keep reinforcing itself. So it's got to be unique stimulus. And if you can pick a physical thing that like, for me, I just chose like, I would, I would knock my fists on top of each other you know, three times before I get ready to lift. Um, and that turned into a flow state anchor for me uh, that I used for years. Uh, so you can do that on purpose by first picking a unique stimulus, whatever it is for you, whatever makes sense and, and isn't too goofy given whatever circumstances, but have that at the ready and then do whatever it is you normally do to get into that state. So it might just be, you know, at the gym when you're already warmed up and you're ready to go, boom, uh, you're, you're feeling good. You're going to blast the weight, start using that anchor. And eventually that will get mentally associated so that when you're not feeling it, when you drug yourself to the gym and you really didn't want to be there, but you know, you wanted to, you know, be somewhat disciplined. Um, if you fire off that anchor again, it can very reliably bring you back into that state. Mm -hmm. And then you can, you know, lift better, perform better in, in whatever way. And that's not just for, you know, just for the gym or getting fired up, but you can, that's a tool you can use really for any, any situation where you want to recall a specific mental state that, that you've been in the past, you know, you can do it. We're not, we're not creating things, but this is a way that you normally can feel. You just want to be able to recall it when you need it. Yeah. Um, you can use that same concept and it could be, could be the exact opposite direction of being super cool, calm and collected and ready to give a speech or something. So before you go out and address an audience, you fire off this anchor and you're just like locked in super cool and ready to recall your speech and, and, you know, give it impressively. Uh, whatever the case is, uh, creating a physical anchor to recall a, a mental state is uh, a super valuable tool and specifically for athletics. No, very true. Uh, Joshua Waitskin talks about this in his book, The Art of Learning, about how um, he developed a trigger. And then he, it was like a 10-minute warm-up. And then he whittled it down to an immediate response. Like, he just was click and he's in. Yeah. And he did it uh, while training for the uh, Tai Chi Push Hands World, uh, World Championships. Um, and for anyone unfamiliar, uh, so Tai Chi push hands is the combative portion of Tai Chi and Tai Chi is often thought of as like kind of a, a flow art form, like an old school, uh, um, I believe it's Thai, uh, Taiwanese, um, like a flow movement, like slow movement, kind of like slow yoga, that kind of thing. But the, the, the martial art of it is very violent and it's, it's, uh, looks a lot like judo. It's not, but it's very similar. It's, it's throws. Um, it's a lot, you, you do throws inside of a, of a, of a, of a space and, um, forced the forced version, your feet are actually flat and you can only throw from flat feet. Once you lift your foot up, you you lose. And mm -hmm. so it's, um, but it's like very, very violent. And so to get into that and to like recover from a round where it's really intense, he would, he had to train himself cause he didn't have 10 minutes, how to 
turn on the, you know, the, um, turn on the thunder as it were. Right. And so he, he talks, it acts actually what he does in it, part of what he does in his, um, his personal, like, or his business practices, he like helps elite level whoever's, you know, high performing individuals find flow states so they can like turn themselves on and like perform high at a, at a high level. And often he'll have them find a trigger. One of the examples he uses in his book is, it, um, is like a CEO or high level sales executive playing baseball catch with his son. That always got him into a flow state because it calmed him down. Okay. And so he liked doing that. And so he would, whenever he had a big meeting, he'd bring his son into the office and he'd play catch with him. Oh, nice. Yeah. And then, and then he'd listen to a song. There was a song that he liked and he'd, he'd listen, you know, and then he'd slowly whittle that down until it got to where he could play catch before work. And that would get him into the zone by the time he got to work. So he didn't need to bring his son in things like that. Yeah. Um, no, very fascinating. Um, I've been trying to work on that myself. I think there's, there's something important with that as well in that you got to recognize that you can either reinforce or you can dilute that anchor or trigger. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't want to fire it off when it's not appropriate and you can't get fully into that state. Yeah. Like only use it when it makes sense and it will reinforce itself. Yeah. But if you trigger it at an inappropriate time or you can't allow yourself to fully get into that state for whatever reason, then you're going to start diluting that anchor. So it is important to kind of protect when you use that uh, so that it only reinforces itself. All right. Well, we've almost hit two hours, buddy. Wow. That went quick. It did. Um, I need food. Yeah, I could eat something as well. Let's call it. Uh, yeah. So I actually, this is a really good conversation. I really enjoyed this. Um, I've been doing a deep dive into uh, performance like hitting peak performance, physical or mental or otherwise, and um, trying to take a break from depressing shit because <laughs> it's been very depressing. Idea. Yeah. And so uh, <laughs> there's been a lot of crazy things going on. And so um, I appreciate you going down this journey with me and trying to um, figure some of this stuff out and talk it through because it's it, it's helpful to like voice a lot of the stuff I've been learning and, and like especially to hear from you because you are unique in the people I know and that you've gone down a pretty intense path towards physical perfection. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I don't know many people who've actually done something like this. And so it, um, like you have. And so it's, it's interesting to, to pick your brain about, and there's probably, I'll probably have more questions probably do another podcast about it. Cause there's other things that I didn't even get to today um, that I'm curious about, but uh, to kind of hear what it, what it's like or what the process is for, getting to that peak level well you know to be honest it's something that i haven't really uh dug deep into the material or thought hard about it in quite a while so this has been fun for me as well to go back and revisit some stuff that i used to saturate myself with for a long time sure Uh, yeah all right well uh everybody find a trigger don't overuse it um don't over train but train like don't be lazy yep um and eat healthy Quit eating shitty foods. You mentioned the pyramid, the the food pyramid that hasn't been updated since like the fifties. So, I think so. it's it's more um, it's it's more recognized as something to be ignored at this point. Yeah, people understand they should just laugh at it. Uh, yes. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, get out there, everybody. Um, exercise, eat well, find out what works best for your body. 
Um, and, uh, and be yeah. to push yourself a little bit. Yes. Yeah. You can push yourselves far further than you realize you can. Um, and so, uh, and thank you all for listening. Hope you have a good rest of the morning, the afternoon or the evening. Take care, everybody.